Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Thank you for joining us this evening. So summer plans are, they are often up in the air. But you can go ahead and you can circle this date in pen, June 1st. That is the deadline for Congress to reach a deal or the U.S. is plunged into financial catastrophe. It's an important date. And man, it is really coming up, really around the corner. There was some hope that the debt ceiling deadline could be pushed off through financial hocus pocus, but no such luck. Today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen confirmed that, yep, June 1st, or we all go over the cliff. And yes, today is May 16th. And if you're the type of person who likes to do math in your head, you may look at those two dates and say to yourself, oh my God, Congress only has 16 days to get this all sorted out. But you would be wrong. Because these are the days that the House is actually in session this month. And these are the days that the Senate is in session this month. Which means unless that changes sometime soon, unless someone calls an audible on those congressional recesses, well, then the House and Senate have somewhere between six to seven working days to hammer this all out. So six or seven days, not a ton of time. Now, panic about that deadline, it does not seem to have set in yet, strangely. Not in Washington, not on Wall Street, where the markets remain relatively ho-hum. And definitely not in the pages of certain newspapers, where this approaching catastrophe is being treated sort of like it's business as usual. Here's a quote from the op-ed pages of the New York Times this week. House Republicans' insistence on negotiations and compromise is not hostage-taking. It is the ordinary stuff of politics. The two sides can posture all they want, but in the end, Congress and the president have to reach an agreement. That is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. Okay, yes, the paper of record published those words in its opinion section. This is not being reported as impartial analysis. It is someone's opinion. But whether or not Republicans are taking the country hostage here isn't really a matter of opinion. It is a matter of fact. Even Republicans know this. Back in 2011, when Republicans first decided that they would put a gun to the head of the American economy in order to extract concessions from a Democratic president, back then, the Washington Post asked Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell what he learned from that whole experience. And he told the Washington Post in no uncertain terms, quote, what we did learn is this. It's a hostage that's worth ransoming. The debt ceiling is a hostage worth ransoming, which is what is happening right now, a hostage crisis. Now, Mitch McConnell also apparently learned that it's nobody's idea of a good time to ransom the U.S. economy. Today, House and Senate leaders from both parties met with President Biden, but Senator McConnell told reporters he doesn't really need to be part of those negotiations because, well, this time it's Kevin McCarthy's problem. The president and the speaker are the keys to the deal. I'm prepared to try to deliver as much of my conference as I can 
for whatever the speaker and the president can agree to. The president and the speaker hold the keys to the deal. See what he did there? Kevin McCarthy, talk to that guy. This is his hostage negotiation, not mine. And actually, that should concern everyone. Well, the great thing about that question is we've already have taken default off the table because the House Republicans passed a bill that raised the debt ceiling. We have already taken default off the table because the House Republicans passed a bill. What Speaker McCarthy is talking about here is the bill passed by House Republicans last month that would kick hundreds of thousands of Americans off their health insurance, that would push hundreds of thousands of people off food assistance programs at a time of rising inflation, and that would, according to Moody's analysis, result in hundreds of thousands of fewer jobs created over the next decade. So yes, that is the list of Republican demands, a set of deeply, deeply unpopular cuts or financial calamity. Democrats, by contrast, want just one thing here. Release the hostage. Let the nation pay the bill that it already racked up during both the Trump and Biden presidencies. Today, President Biden officially canceled part of his overseas trip next week in order to deal with this. He has also dispatched two of his top aides to negotiate directly with aides to Speaker McCarthy and to figure out an end to this crisis. But what exactly does that mean? After all, the White House has said for months now, we will not negotiate over the debt ceiling. And yet Democratic leaders are now saying that the only way out of this crisis is an agreement with bipartisan support in both houses of Congress, which sounds a lot like negotiations over the debt ceiling. If that is the case, how does this all end? And what do Democrats get out of it? Joining us now for his very first television interview since assuming the job of White House Communications Director is Ben LeBolt. Ben, thank you for being here. Uh, What a day, what a time to start the new gig. Um, Let me just get right to, I think the question that a lot of folks are wondering, is the White House now negotiating over the debt limit? No. Look, Alex, default is not an option. It would tip the country into a recession and cost us millions of jobs. Uh, The president simply won't allow that to happen. What the president has been open to throughout this process is a budget negotiation, is an appropriations negotiation through the typical process. And so he's deployed his team uh, to Capitol Hill uh, to negotiate and find a reasonable bipartisan agreement that both parties and both chambers can support. That's the way out of this. That's the way out of this crisis. Um, We're not going to give up the economic gains of of the past two years. 12.7 million jobs created, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, a clean energy industry getting off the ground in this country. The president and his negotiators are going to protect those gains throughout this process. I'm still confused about how that is not a negotiation over the debt limit, even if it is being called a negotiation over the budget, it is happening at precisely the same time that Republicans are holding hostage the American economy. And that seems to be their Trump card. Pardon the um, the invocation of Trump's name. In, in, in that respect, I guess I wonder, <laughs> do you can are you concerned that Republicans are ready to shoot the hostage and that they fundamentally because of that hold the upper hand? Well, I don't think so. I mean, look, we did think it was an encouraging meeting between the leaders today. It's important that Leader McConnell said after the first meeting that default was not an option. Uh, 
Speaker McCarthy uh, came close to that at the microphones today. And so the leaders seem to be heading in the same direction that default is not an option. It would cost the American economy and American workers too much. There's some distance between the budget agreements. There's no question about that. The president has introduced a budget to continue to invest in America uh, and support manufacturing and clean energy and bringing down health care costs. And Republicans, as you pointed out in your opening segment, uh, have introduced a budget that would cut by 22 percent essential programs for working Americans uh, from health care to veterans health care benefits to law enforcement to the Border Patrol. And so there's significant distance still uh, between the budgets. But what we're looking for at this stage, we've got to get default taken off the table. And then, look, the president recognizes it's a Republican House. There's going to have to be some compromise to get to a budget agreement. And we recognize that. But he's bringing he's bringing a budget plan to the process that does reduce the deficit by three trillion dollars, by but does it by taxing the wealthiest and taxing corporations uh, and demanding we put an end to subsidies for oil and gas companies and, and big pharma. So that's the framework the president and his negotiators are taking into the process. But ultimately, we're going to need to get to a reasonable bipartisan uh, deal that can pass both chambers. And is there a timetable for that? I guess I'm trying to understand the budget negotiation process. Seems like you guys are far apart on that and you readily admit as such. The priorities are radically different. Do you think that you're going to reach agreement on those budgetary principles at the same in the same window that you need to get everybody on the same page about default on the debt in terms of the debt uh, ceiling? Well, look, we have a very important deadline uh, for default, right? Secretary Yellen has analyzed the tax returns and determined that as soon as June 1st, the government could fail to pay its obligations. When we even got close to that deadline in 2011, um, we got downgraded and that had economic implications. And so we can't allow that to happen to the American people. We need to take default off the table at the same time as we can get as the president's always been willing to, a framework uh, for a budget through the typical process um, off the ground. Sure, that will take some time to negotiate. Um, There is a significant gap between priorities there, but we're going to take our priorities to that framework. His negotiators are on the Hill. uh, And ultimately, the outcome we need over the next couple of weeks is to remove default from the table and ensure that we don't tip into a recession. I'm sorry to belabor this point, Ben, but you're you're talking about a few weeks. We know, practically speaking, there are five or six working days for Congress to actually get something done on this. Are you on the same page about do you have I know the White House is on on has been firm in its stance that we cannot the U.S. economy cannot default. Is is Kevin McCarthy signaling that he, too, believes the U.S. economy cannot default? And if not, how do you get him to do that in the next five or six working days? We think this was a productive meeting today that headed towards a recognition between the leaders that default is simply not an option. Um, And now um, negotiations on the Hill around a budget framework um, have been accelerated. The president introduced his budget on on March 9th, I'd remember you. So we brought that to the table. The Republicans passed theirs uh, in late April. uh, And so we have had a window to get this budget negotiation off the ground. Uh, The negotiators the president sent to the Hill, Louisa Terrell, Steve Ruschetti, Uh, And Shalanda Young, they started those conversations this evening. They're happening in earnest. I think there's more working days in a week than typical right now because we need to get this done because of the catastrophic implications default could have for the economy. 
Do you have the sense, does the president believe that Kevin McCarthy is a reliable narrator in terms of getting things past his caucus and making agreements that will actually stick? Um, Well, look, I think he believes that the speaker is a trustworthy person. He also recognizes um, the politics of the conference right now and that it took 15 votes to get elected speaker and that the budget framework that's been introduced by House Republicans reflects the the framework of the right wing um, Freedom Caucus. We think the path forward is really uh, finding uh, a, a budget framework Uh, that can pass both chambers, uh, that members of both parties are going to happen to to going to need to vote for. uh, And we need a majority of those votes. And so uh, we're going to have to look in in both parties um, to find the votes for the path forward. And you think Kevin McCarthy is acting in good faith as all of that all of that is concerned. But I do wonder, is the president willing to keep any other mechanisms, like, for example, the 14th Amendment in his back pocket as a failsafe in case these negotiations don't work out? You know, the, the president has addressed that. One of the challenges with taking unilateral executive action uh, right now is that it's likely to end up uh, in, in litigation uh, and, uh, and could be decided through the courts in fairly short order. Um, you know, our goal here is to take default off the table uh, for the longer term, uh, not to present a solution that could just buy us a week or two. I guess <laughs> I got to ask you, um, I want to turn. I know it's a hard turn, but I, I have to ask you because it seems like we are dealing with an increasingly um, alarming situation as it concerns attacks on government officials. Jerry Connolly, uh, the congressman, his office was um he, he there's been a wave of attacks against various government officials, whether it's uh, Jake Sullivan, Jerry Connolly, Paul Pelosi, not actually a government official, but of course, the husband of the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. We do not know what the motives are for all of these attacks, but we do know that emanating from right wing circles, there is a lot of anti-government rhetoric, a lot of violent rhetoric. Is the White House concerned about what may come in the next months as potentially increasing pressure is ratcheted up on former President Trump. I mean, to what degree does the White House look at this landscape and say we are headed and careening towards potential disaster? Um, Well, well, listen, you know, political violence and and violence in the political process is one of the reasons that President Biden uh, decided to run in 2020. He saw the events in in Charlottesville uh, and he grew concerned that what in the past had been uh, rhetorical debate. Suddenly, you're seeing um, the rise of hate uh, and and hate crimes uh, and political violence, which isn't acceptable uh, in uh, in any scenario. So, you know, the Justice Department plays a role uh, in uh, in responding to that. Uh, federal and state and local law enforcement certainly play a role in responding to that. And the president has made it a priority to to resource. Uh, them. Uh, but it is uh, an ongoing concern and something that the administration uh, is doing everything we can uh, to make sure that um, the American people um, stay, you know, never resort to uh, political violence. The president has consistently condemned this. Uh, and ultimately, it's up to the, the Justice Department to make sure we're holding accountable um, those who perpetuate these sorts of these sorts of crimes. White House Communications Director Ben LeBolt. Uh, it's great talking with you, Ben. Thanks for your time tonight. Nice to talk to you, Alex. We have a lot to get to this evening. It is election night here 
in America. And though it may not look like it, democracy itself is once again on the ballot. Plus, prosecutors push back against Donald Trump as his lawyers in multiple cases fight to get their cases against him either delayed or thrown out. More on that just ahead. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. There was a time in Donald Trump's life when he could use his presidential muscle to basically make his allies at the Department of Justice sort of fall in line to ensure that investigators didn't investigate the wrong things. But Donald Trump is not president anymore. And the prosecutors leading investigation these days, including Alvin Bragg in New York and Fonnie Willis in Georgia, they are not falling in line. Quite the opposite. After Trump was indicted in Manhattan for falsifying business records in order to conceal a hush money payment, Trump's team demanded the former president be provided a bill of particulars. That is a very detailed, formal, written statement explaining the charges against him. Team Trump also wanted the Manhattan DA to explain, again, in that bill of particulars, what second crime Trump might have been committed, might have, might have committed in falsifying those business records. And that is because that second crime is what allowed the DA's office to charge Trump with a felony and not just a misdemeanor. So that is information they very much want. Well, today, the Manhattan DA's office gave Trump what can really only be described as a brush off. In a newly unsealed legal filing, DA Bragg's office wrote the facts set forth in the indictment and the accompanying statement of facts provide all the particulars to which the defendant is entitled. And then they note that defendant is not entitled to the information requested. Basically, Mr. Trump will only get what he's entitled to and what he's entitled to right now is nothing. As the people advise the court and the defendant at his arraignment, the people are prepared to provide millions of pages of discovery to the defendant once the defendant has been advised on the record of the terms of content of and conduct prohibited by the protective order entered by this court on May 8th. So prosecutors are saying they, they have plenty of material to share with Mr. Trump, millions of pages, in fact. But before Trump can get any of it, he needs to understand the rules. And the rules here, they prevent Trump from discussing, describing, or posting on social media any evidence obtained during the discovery process, and they block him from reviewing certain documents anywhere but in his lawyer's offices. It is a lot of rules for a former president. But given the fact that Trump is currently being investigated for mishandling classified information, well, it sort of makes sense. So, yes, this is a far cry from the days when Trump could just call Bill Barr and, well, we have no idea what Trump said to Bill Barr, but there were probably not rules like this in place. 
Now, Alvin Bragg's response today comes just one day after Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis down in Georgia, after she filed her response to Trump's demand that her office be dismissed from the investigation into efforts to subvert the 2020 election. This is what DA Willis wrote. If any of the elements put forward by Mr. Trump in his motion were the egregious grounds for disqualification, which he asserts they are, he had a duty to praise them to the court's attention as soon as he learned of them. Far from raising this issue promptly, Mr. Trump has waited years until after the conclusion of an entire special purpose grand jury investigation when the Fulton County DA's office own investigation has moved into its latter stages. In other words, good luck getting me fired and good luck making your case, Mr. Trump. But unless a judge demands it, the Georgia investigation continues. This evening, Trump's legal team asked the judge for another three weeks to file a reply to D.A. Willis, a request that seems unlikely to be granted. Joining me now are former federal and state prosecutor Tali Farhadian-Weinstein and Danya Perry, former, form, former, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Thank you both for being here. Um, I am not a legal expert. I am not a lawyer. I have no legal background. But just on its face, I'll go with you first, Danya. This looks like a pretty strong brushback to the president's legal team on both counts or from both DAs, Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg. Am I reading that right? I think you're reading that exactly right. Um, so these are both local elected prosecutors who, even under the old heyday, under Attorney General Barr, would not you know, be within the, the confines of the Department of Justice. But these two prosecutors have shown themselves to be um, very independent-minded, and they are following the facts and running it down. And yeah, these were both of them. I, I think your term brushback is exactly right. Um, D.A. Bragg's office told the judge and and Trump himself in no uncertain terms, you've got everything you have. You have millions of pages, and there's very liberal discovery rules in New York. And so that's your answer. Mm -hmm. Sift through the millions of documents of and you'll find it eventually. And, but uh, only in your lawyer's office. You can't look at those millions of pages to discovery on your own. Yeah. And that is unusual. But under the circumstances, the judge found here that that was warranted. And so he'll have to abide by a set of rules, you know, that don't apply to most people, but do uniquely apply in this situation because of his tendency to flout those rules. And D.A. Willis as well, um, her office came back and said, usually it's not a great argument to say, well, you waited too long. Um, but that is a strong argument. And Trump's legal team often uses delay mm -hmm. as a strategy. But he or she also had some very substantive, good legal reasons with with precedent to back it up to say, no, in this case, not, no way, no how. once again, you get the brush off. Wait, I, do you think it's indicative of their own belief in the strength of their cases, Tali? Is this a sign that they're like, you know what? We don't need to play ball on any of this because we're about to get you. Sorry to put it in layman's mm. terms, but I, I just am trying to interpret what the message here might be. Well, I think we actually have to take each case, Alex, on its own terms. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think it's sort of easy to always think of him as someone who's looking for delay as a tactic. I mean, you've got a decade of a track record of him always trying to find a way to drag something out. But I think what he's done in each of these cases is different, and we have to sort of analyze the responses differently. So I think what Fania Willis has said is this motion is both too late 
and too early. So as Donya said, it's too late because some of the stuff you're complaining about, it's like the structural, you know, reasons for having a a two-step grand jury in Georgia. You should have complained about that when we got started two years ago and some of it too early because you haven't been injured yet. Nothing has happened. You're not a witness in this grand jury and you actually have to be indicted before you can complain about the grand jury. I think what's happening in Manhattan is different. There's kind of a disconnect between what he's asking for and what the DA has come back with, because he is using the device of the Bill of Particulars to actually try to get some more law. He's trying to say, please tell me what that second crime is. And the DA is responding with, well, actually, a a Bill of Particulars is about facts, and we're going to give you all these facts, Mm -hmm. as Donnie said, through discovery. But I think that question of what is the second crime, a legal question, not a factual question, is hanging over this case Yes, and is going to continue hanging over this case. And just because Donald Trump is the person making that argument, it doesn't doesn't mean mean that it's wrong. You know, a broken clock is right twice Twice a day. day. And, And in this case, I think he's actually has some good arguments on his side and... Fairness and maybe the public interest does demand that he knows so that he can defend himself. Do you think so? Do you you think that the DA's response is insufficient? I think that it's sufficient here because this device, again, is really about getting more facts. And the bill of particulars is is not even actually that useful anymore now that New York law has changed and you have to produce discovery to a defendant early. But I think again and again, Trump is going to try to say, I need to know what that second crime Crime is. is or how can I defend myself? And I think it's a strategic decision for this the DA to not tell him and to keep pushing that out. And I think something that is going to make the case vulnerable all the way through appeal, if it gets that well, far. Well, a lot of, not just Donald Trump, a lot of people want to know what the step-up crime is, that second crime that goes Indeed. from misdemeanor to felony. And there are four breadcrumbs scattered in this filing, right, Danya? Um, the DA's office effectively says Trump, the defendant, intended to commit or to aid or conceal one New York election law, New York tax law, New York penal law, violations of the Federal Election Campaign Act. Those are, I mean, without going into excruciating detail on each one of those, those are the laws we thought maybe the DA was looking at for that step up uh, crime. But having it in black and white, does that offer any certainty to you? Is, Is there anything to read into the selection of those four in particular? I don't think so. I, I, I helped co-author a report on this for the Brookings Institution many, many months before this indictment was actually handed down. And that's kind of what we thought. That's what everyone thought. It's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not great. We don't deserve great credit for that. And so I don't think this actually gives that much more. And to Tali's point, at some point, even if they don't have to as a matter of law, they might wish to as a matter of fact and jury appeal actually try and hone in on what is the theory. A jury doesn't necessarily want to pick and choose from a menu of options. Right. They can, um, but it, it, it might behoove them at some point to try and articulate in it on exactly what they think the, the step up was to, to, to get the jury to unanimously vote on, on one of them. Yeah, it would seem like you have to lay out a theory of when it comes, this is the first criminal indictment of a former president, Tali, to just for the DA's office to just say, it could be one of these four things. I don't think certainly isn't going to satisfy Donald Trump, but just in the court of a public opinion, 
before this case goes to trial, you would think he would lay out exactly what he thinks the, the felony charge is. Indeed. I mean, it doesn't sit well to say you either committed this crime or you committed that crime and sort of approximate a way to get to a conviction. And look, there is some case law in New York that justifies doing it that way. There's a very old case about burglary, a kind of burglary that requires an intent to commit a second crime. And the law in New York has been, well, you don't have to say if when you broke into someone's house, was it to steal something or to hurt somebody? But over time, and I think this is a good thing, we have said transparency really matters. Notice to a defendant really matters. And the public is watching, as you say, Alex. So I, I think If they keep choosing to answer in this, well, we don't have to tell you way, uh, it's going to great. And Trump is going to keep pushing and not just because he pushes wherever he can, but because here I think he actually has something to work with. But it sounds like his case is weaker in Georgia, where he's trying where they're basically trying to rewind the clock on an investigation that has sped full force ahead. And there look to be charging decisions made in the next few weeks. Yeah, I've, uh, we've been told July in the July to August time frame. And so Trump will get to respond. He's got three weeks. And Do you think he'll actually get three decide. weeks? I, that's not that unusual. And D.A. Will has had, I believe, two months in order to respond. So there's been a rather long um, time frame on this. But, you know, it's, it's put up or shut up time. And the judge is going to have to decide before July. Okay, well, mark your calendars for July, August, or September. <laughs> the list goes on. Tali Farhadi, Farhadi and Weinstein and Danya Perry, it's so great to see you guys. Thanks for joining me tonight. When we come back, voters headed to the polls today for a bunch of races featuring election deniers and 2020 truthers. We are going to get the latest from America's sweetheart, Steve Kornacki, just ahead. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In the heat of an election, when ballots are still being counted and results are being contested, democracy's first line of defense isn't Congress and it is not the president. It is your state's secretary of state. It is your local judges. It is the person running elections just for your county. If the chaos of the 2020 election taught us anything, it is how important those local election officials are. And that is why I think tonight's primary elections really matter. They are the first and sometimes second and third line of defense in preserving democracy itself. 
After the 2020 election, former President Trump and his supporters filed more than 60 lawsuits attempting to overturn the results in states that he lost. Dozens of judges across the country and across the political spectrum, they basically waved the Trump lawyers off and they rejected their lawsuits. But one judge did not. Pennsylvania appeals court judge Patricia McCullough issued an order to halt the certification of the Pennsylvania election. It was a huge victory for Trump, optically speaking. And to this day, Trump supporters view that ruling as a victory. But nearly immediately, literally three days later, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court unanimously overruled Judge McCullough because the Trump team's argument was basically bonkers. But now that judge, the only judge who ruled in Trump's favor in more than 60 election fraud lawsuits, tonight she is running to be on the Republican ticket for the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, the court that overruled her decision in 2020. Now, at the lower level in each of the counties in Pennsylvania, the news outlet VoteBeat is sounding the alarm about county-level election officials. Those roles are traditionally sort of boring. They pick polling locations, and they make decisions on things like whether your county will use drop boxes or let people fix ballots that have been filled out incorrectly. VoteBeat is sounding the alarm because they've identified at least 26 people in Pennsylvania who are running for those kinds of county-level election official positions who happen to be election deniers. So those are the stakes for Pennsylvania tonight. We don't have the results over there yet, but in tonight's other primary election state over in Kentucky, we are seeing some news that is reassuring if you like representative democracy. I'm Steve Nipper, running for Secretary of State. Our voter rolls are controlled by a George Soros system. No wonder two-thirds of our counties have more voters in them than citizens. I know that guy's a little hard to hear, so just for clarity's sake, he begins his pitch to voters by saying, quote, our voter rolls are controlled by a George Soros system. No wonder two-thirds of our counties have more voters in them than citizens. That's the pitch. That guy who had the endorsement of Pillow CEO and election conspiracist Mike Lindell, that guy was running to be Kentucky's Republican candidate for secretary of state. Tonight, local news outlets, including the NBC affiliate in Lexington, Kentucky, they're reporting that Mr. Nipper has lost. The incumbent secretary of state, who is also a Republican, but not, importantly, an election denier, he seems to be beating Mr. Nipper handily. I know there are not a ton of big names on the ballot tonight, but democracy itself is definitely on the ballot. And the 2024 race is certainly on the ballot. The great Steve Kornacki will join, Kornacki will join me live here coming up in just a few minutes to discuss all of this. We have some breaking news for you. The North Carolina legislature has just banned abortion after 12 weeks with few exceptions. Now, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper had publicly vetoed this bill on Saturday, but Republicans hold a veto-proof supermajority in the state house, which means that today the North Carolina State Senate and House were able to vote along party lines to override the governor. Their bill will become law, and the 12-week ban will take effect on July 1st. If anything demonstrates just how much the, these down-ballot measures matter and these down-ballot races, it is moments like these. And especially on a night like tonight, where there are elections happening right now in important down-ballot races. Polls have closed for primary races in both Kentucky and Pennsylvania. And we are keeping an eye on Pennsylvania, where just a few months ago, after a really drawn-out battle for control of the statehouse, Democrats flipped the chamber for the first time in 12 years
They hold the House by one seat for now, which is not nothing in the swing state of Pennsylvania. Remember back in 2020 when it very much mattered who controlled that state house. Trump and his allies reached out to then Republican Pennsylvania House Speaker Brian Cutler, seeking Mr. Cutler's help in overturning Joe Biden's win in the state. Some Republican members of the House tried intervening themselves, claiming that the results of the 2020 election were in dispute. Ultimately, that last-ditch attempt to intervene in the state certification of the 2020 results, that failed. But it all goes to show that who runs the state house matters. And tonight, the question of whether Pennsylvania Democrats get to keep control of it will be determined by two special elections, one in a Republican stronghold and the other in the suburbs of Philadelphia. As expected, the AP just announced that the Republican candidate running in that Republican stronghold has won. And then there is the state of Kentucky, where Trump-endorsed Attorney General Daniel Cameron has won the Republican gubernatorial primary. In November, Cameron will face incumbent Governor Andy Beshear, who is considered one of the most vulnerable Democrats in the country. Joining me now is MSNBC national political correspondent Steve Kornacki, without whom we would all be lost. It is good to see you, Steve. Um, It's election night. And it's not the big names, the household names that I think a lot of people are familiar with. But this these are the this is the machinery of of governance and in many ways, election integrity. Let's start first with the gubernatorial race in Kentucky. Andy Bashir, very vulnerable uh, when it comes to the general. What do we know about um, Daniel Cameron, the Republican AG, who appears to be the person Bashir will be running against? Yeah, Cameron getting a very convincing win in this Republican primary tonight. Interestingly, he ran with the endorsement of former President Donald Trump, but also with the endorsement of Mitch McConnell. And you know that Trump and McConnell have certainly been at loggerheads a bit these last couple of years. So he managed to unite the two of them. And really, he managed to unite, as it turned out, the Republican Party in Kentucky pretty strongly behind him. Cameron, somebody a lot of Republicans nationally have been keeping an eye on for a few years. He had a speaking role at the 2020 Republican National Convention. And what this is really going to test in the fall is two things. Number one, Bashir The Democratic incumbent is personally popular in Kentucky when you poll that. But his party, the Democratic Party, obviously, and especially the national version of the Democratic Party, is extremely unpopular in Kentucky. So can Republicans take advantage of that partisan tendency in the state to just vote against Democrats because they don't like the party? Have they found a candidate as well who has some qualities of his own that might be appealing to voters? And can they knock off an incumbent Democrat who's personally popular? Worth remembering when Bashir won that office four years ago. It was against a very personally unpopular Republican. The margin was just about 5,000 votes. Uh, as far as the Secretary of State race, we we played uh, an ad from Michael Nipper, who sorry, Stephen Nipper, who was running in this primary. He was uh, the person that was railing against George Soros and saying that the voters outnumbered citizens in the state. Uh, he appears to have been beat by Michael Adams. Can you tell me a little bit more about Michael Adams as secretary of state? He's the incumbent. Yeah, Michael Adams, the incumbent secretary of state, who um, a number of issues here stood up for the integrity of the elections in, in, in his state uh, and nationally. Um, it has won this thing. It looks like the last I checked, it's close to 30 points here. So it's it's a solid or, or 30, 35 point victory for him. Do you so, read anything into that, given the fact that he was pretty proudly 
not an election denier, right? And this yeah. is Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, this is, in a lot of ways, Trump country. The fact that he won so handily is that, I mean, how do you read that? It's it's tough to say because we had a few of these last year. I think of the Nebraska Secretary of State's race last year. Believe it or not, there was a similar situation in Nebraska where it was two Trump-aligned Republicans came after a sort of moderate on, on election issues Republican Secretary of State in the primary and didn't win and, and didn't come that close. So we saw a number of these secretaries of state last year actually survive and actually in many cases survive easily. Mm-hmm. So and, and sometimes there was a temptation in that primary in those in that primary season last year to read those as indicators that the party was moving away from Donald Trump. But then you would see the party in other ways move much more closely to Donald Trump uh, in some of its other candidate selections. So I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I, we've seen a signal like we're getting uh, out of Kentucky before in that secretary. I read it as a good sign for democracy that the person who's running the state elections does not believe in election denialism. Um, Speaking of election deniers, let's talk about the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court. Uh, We reminded our viewers uh, right before the break that Patricia McCullough, the woman who is, I believe she's an appellate court judge, is running for a seat on the state Supreme Court. She is the one judge that handed Trump a victory in 2020, which Team Trump has never forgotten. Uh, What can you tell me about that race and the likelihood that she will be sitting on the state Supreme Court in the, when the 2024 election rolls around. So it's, the votes are being counted right now. Carolyn Carluccio is her opponent in the Republican primary. The state Republican Party has endorsed Carluccio. They believe she's electable in the general election. They don't believe that McCullough is electable in the general election. Uh, the last I checked before I came out here, Carluccio was slightly ahead. I'm talking about four points ahead in, in the tally. It looked like one of the dynamics in this race is there's an east-west divide in Pennsylvania, kind of the Philly-Pittsburgh divide. It looked like there was a little bit more disproportionately vote from the western part of the state, which is McCullough's part of the state, than from Carluccio's eastern part of the state. So it's it's too close to call. It's It's a tight election. And the other factor worth considering, I think, in all this, too, is you remember last year in Pennsylvania, a big story was Doug Mastriano, yes. the Republican candidate for governor, tr- aligned himself with all of Trump's claims about 2020. He has thrown his support, strongly thrown his support behind McCullough in this race. He is considering running for the United States Senate from Pennsylvania next year. So in some ways, I think this could be a little bit of a test of Mastriano's lingering strength in the Republican Party as well. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that if McCullough is elected to the state Supreme Court, it will not change the balance of the power on the court, right? Much like, I mean, not like the Wisconsin state Supreme Court race that we had that had national attention, but it is still meaningful. It's right now Democrats have a 4-2 majority. If a Republican got one of those seats, that would be a 4-3 majority. In a state like Pennsylvania, one of the swingiest states in the country, in a presidential election year, in any election year, the balance of the Supreme Court really very, very much matters. Um, I got to ask you about the Pennsylvania State House because that is also a body that matters right. in that state. And whether or not you think the balance of power tips to back to Republicans, the Democrats have had it for just a handful of what feels like hours. Right. They, they finally won it last November after 12 years of trying. Coming into tonight with these vacancies, Democrats had a one-seat edge in the Pennsylvania uh, State House. Now, you mentioned there's that one Republican district that was expected. It's now happened. The Republicans won. So that ties it, and now it's come down to this one seat. It's a, Demo- it's a vacancy had been held by a Democrat. It's in Delaware County, which is right outside uh, of Philadelphia. 
What we've got counted in this district so far are just the mail-in ballots. Remember, the mail-in ballots are always, especially in Pennsylvania, heavily Democratic. The Democrat has won the mail-in ballots by 50 points. This is a district that voted solidly for Joe Biden, voted solidly Democratic in last year's midterm elections. We got to see some actual same-day results before we can say anything definitive But that's a heck of a hill for, I think, the Republican to climb there in a district where the terrain is already hostile to Republicans to begin with. A heck of a hill in Kornacki speak to me says Democrats might hold on to this. I think the Democrats are looking at what they're seeing in that district and and feeling more confident than Republicans now. But let's see. The always wise Steve Kornacki. Always hedging. (laughs) Always hedging Steve Kornacki. It's always great to see you, my friend. Thanks for being here. That is the show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.